Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What are our non-negotiables? What are the core of who we are? When they're not being honored, do we just feel like something is not right? Like we're just angry, right? And we don't know how to explain it. We feel like something's not being honored about the core of who we are. Because that ultimately is the underpinning behind setting boundaries externally to ourselves. That was Dr. Tammy Cheng on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Small behaviors can make a big difference in our health and well-being. Most of us work so many hours each week that we should think about how our work habits affect our bodies. Being able to stand sometimes while I work has made a huge difference for me. Uplift Desks has created high-quality office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. My Uplift Standing Desk allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me recharge to change positions when I get tired in the afternoon. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash P-O-T-C for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com POTC. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. And here at Psychologists Off the Clock, we are huge fans of Praxis. One of the things I love most about Praxis is they offer both live and on-demand courses. So if you're really looking for that live interaction with other people who are taking the course, you can get that. Or if you have a busy schedule and you need something that you can just kind of click onto whenever you have time, they offer that as well. And every course I have ever taken from Praxis has really been of such value to me. I get questions a lot from clinicians who are looking for ACT training or other types of trainings. And Praxis is my go-to place that I send people no matter what level they are because they have really good beginner trainings for people who have no experience. And they also have terrific advanced trainings on different topics and just people who want to keep building their skills. You can go to our website and get a coupon for the live trainings by going to our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. And we'll hope to see you there. 
We at Psychologists Off the Clock are so excited to share that we're going to be launching our book club on May 5th, 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S., and the first book that we're going to be discussing is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. We hope all of our listeners that love reading books just as much as we do will join Yael and I once a month to really take a deep dive into a whole bunch of different kinds of books and really be able to apply them to their lives. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com. And we'll send you the Zoom link for this first meeting, as well as information for upcoming meetings of the book club. Hello, everyone. This is Debbie, and I'm here with Yael today to introduce an episode I did with a physician, Dr. Tammy Chang. I loved talking with Tammy, with Dr. Chang, because She is just this wonderful human being. She's a physician who does a lot of work with women physicians. She has a book on boundaries for women physicians and another book on how to thrive as a woman physician. And I think her work is really so wonderful, not just for physicians, but beyond really anyone who gets burned out in their work, who has trouble maybe setting boundaries. And I know that's me and that's a lot of my clients and a lot of people in the world. And she was just so delightful to speak with. I was so excited to make this connection with her. Yael, what did you, what thoughts do you have? Well, the episode spoke to me too. I definitely have struggled with burnout and write about it a bit in in my book. And Debbie, I know that this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart, so much so that you're writing an entire book devoted to work burnout and to using ACT principles to help manage work burnout. So in the episode, I was just really touched by how openly Dr. Chang shared her personal story. And it's a painful story. Um, But it got me to thinking, you know, that many of us have personal stories that we don't talk much about. And I wondered if you could share yours, how you got interested in work burnout and why it's such a passion project for you. I know that it is. So I wonder if you can share with us your story. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think like a lot of therapists, we sometimes, not always, but sometimes we become interested in areas that we have a deep personal connection to. And me search. (laughs) Right. Me search, they say. Yes. I, so I used to work in a healthcare system for, gosh, I think it was like over 12 years, maybe, I don't know, 13 or 14 years, something like that. I worked in a hospital, you know, hospital setting. And I was a psychologist on a medical team, a rehab medicine team and worked with complex patients. And, you know, like most people, I had some periods of burnout that would sort of come and go, but nothing major. But then I had a pretty major burnout period. I think I had had a lot of transition at work and was kind of struggling to stay on top of things. I was also just busy in other roles. Like my kids were very young and I was spread too thin. I just had too much going on at once. And I was just really bogged down trying to keep all the balls in the air. It's, you know, one of the components of burnout is chronic stress. And I was just so stressed out. And I think what happened is that I just really got to a point where it was, it was just such a slog, right? I was exhausted. I normally am, you know me, I'm normally so like passionate about my work and I love my work, but I was just disengaged from it, just didn't care the way I normally do. And the thing is, it didn't just come and go that time. I was really struggling for a long time. And I, I think it just took me a while to piece together. It's so interesting because I knew about burnout, right? But it took me a while to have this like light bulb moment of like, I'm experiencing burnout. I need to make some changes here. I I just kind of didn't know what was going on for a long time. I just was really struggling to keep up in a way that I am not normally struggling um, beyond the normal. And what happened was that you know, by taking a look at this, I started really talking to a lot of other people about burnout, you know, other people on my team were experiencing it. And around that time, I was moving into private practice. So I was still working in a medical setting part time. And I was also starting a private practice. And I was really drawn to working with clients with burnout, like a lot of healthcare professionals, which is an area I specialize in now, but also, you know, people in law, education, mental health, all kinds of 
different areas of work burnout and also parental burnout, caregiver burnout. And I, it just became something I'm really passionate about. And so then, you know, I started writing about it and talking about it and giving talks and it just kind of snowballed into something that I feel it's really meaningful to me because I feel like it's connected to my personal experience. I've been there so I can understand it and relate to it at a personal level, but also I'm able to help people who do really important, meaningful work. And it's hard. It's not like a simple thing. So it's like, it's interesting work to do. And sometimes, you know, people need to make a change. Sometimes they need to just really work on it from a more emotional level. Um, and so that's my story, which is kind of a long one. But that and that's why I think I intersected so well with Dr. Chang's work, because we've both had that experience and both have gravitated toward this work in our careers. Totally. And one thing that I'll just point out is that you were very familiar with this idea that, that of work burnout, of parental burnout. And yet it took you some time to figure out like, oh, this is happening to me. And I think that just really speaks to the idea that, you know, we get so caught up in life, in work, in, in all of the demanding roles that we have, and we're just kind of doing what needs to be done. And even if you know a lot about the signs and the symptoms and the danger points, you can still find yourself in that position of, you know, not bouncing back in the way that you used to. And it can take some time to even realize it and then some effort and some really practical strategies to dig yourself out of burnout, to recover from burnout. And I will say that, again, you know, I have a real personal affinity for for this conversation because I, too, have struggled with work burnout. And it's something that's kind of an ongoing challenge for me because some of the habits and sort of life philosophies that I have had, you know, the sort of like being a woman in society and being raised in certain ways to say yes, and, and that that is sort of the quote unquote right way to be a, as a professional, as a service provider, um, can really make it hard to sustain healthy practices in your work and, and parenting life and, and elsewhere. Yeah. And I think that, that Dr. Ching she acknowledges all of the cultural aspects of burnout and also gives you these really practical, you know, how do you set boundaries? How do you say no to things? And toward the end of the interview, she really moves more into some of those kind of practical ways of, of managing burnout. And so it's, it's, I think it's a nice mix. And I've definitely referred to her work and to this conversation with multiple clients. My guest today, Dr. Tammy Chang, is a board-certified physician in pediatric hematology and oncology, practicing in Tacoma, Washington at Mary Bridge Children's Hospital. She's the medical director of the Multicare Provider Wellness Program and founder and director of her hospital's Pediatric Cancer Survivorship Program. She's also an empowerment and leadership coach for women physicians and the co-founder of Pink Coat MD, which is a platform to support and empower the personal and professional success of women physicians all over the world. And she has two books out. One is called Boundaries for Women Physicians, Love Your Life and Career in Medicine, and also How to Thrive as a Woman Physician, which is co-authored with Louisa Duran. Tammy, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Debbie. It's just a joy to be here. Yeah, and we were just talking offline about how there's a lot of overlap in our work. I think we have a lot in common and also a lot to learn from each other. And I think you specifically work a lot with physicians and with women's physicians, especially and yet I really found a lot of value in reading through your work and looking at what you're up to, because I think we likely will have some women physicians who listen to this episode. Um, but I want listeners to know that a lot of what we're going to talk about today, I think, will be more broadly applicable because we're going to be talking about stress and burnout and boundaries and all kinds of things that certainly, you know, many people in medicine experience. Um, but not limited to medicine in today's world. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the reality is the common link is we're all human beings, right? And every single human being has common struggles too, regardless right. of the industry. Yeah. Well, I think that um, a lot of people both in and out of medicine will be able to relate to your personal story of what of what you've been through and what got you to this particular area of interest in your life. So I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners about your burnout story and how you ended up doing this coaching and well-being work that you write about in your books. 
Oh, of course. Thanks for letting me share that. Because that really is the why with a capital W behind everything. That's where this all started. And I think a lot of us who are in this burnout position, burnout space as physicians have had our own story, right? That's why we're so passionate about it. But it's not just about us. It's like everyone who isn't experiencing some level of burnout at this point in the pandemic, right? So, so my story is essentially, gosh, it's been three and a half years now since uh, the low point of my career. So I was about six years out of five, six years out of training. So I'm eight, nine years out of training now and really hit rock bottom, severe burnout. I was suicidal, needed a lot of help and needed actually time off from work and really needed to rebuild my life and reconsider what I'd spent probably the last over 20 years training to become a physician. Right. And yet I burned out from my dream job of being a pediatric oncologist. And so there clearly had to be a different way. And that's when I discovered coaching. It's, I actually went deep dive into therapy during that time. And I came back to work about three months later, just on fire to do anything I could to make things better for others. Thank you for your openness and talking about your own struggle, because that sounds like it was a really hard period for you. And I'm curious if having gone through that and now you're doing the work that you're doing has transformed. I know we'll talk about some of the specifics about things like boundaries and how you've created better balance for yourself. But I'm, I mean, more generally, just in terms of, you know, the direction your career headed, if that transformed things for you. Oh, absolutely. It totally changed everything, you know, and I actually am now the direct medical director of provider wellness for my whole healthcare system. So that's about 4,000 physicians and APPs who I get to create and support and help change the culture of medicine for. And I, I mean, that never would have happened, right? Had all that not happened. I, I never could imagine, have imagined at that period of my life that I would be doing that now and getting to write. I would never have written a book or started a platform. I mean, none of the stuff I'm doing today, I, would never have done. I don't think I could have done, would have done it, right? Like I don't know, but it it did totally transform the change the, the trajectory of my life. It did. It's like a, an example of how sometimes going through a hard thing can spark a change that is actually very meaningful. Yeah. 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 So one of the things in your book, as you were leading up to that period of burnout, um, you write about how you were in a pattern of give, 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 right? Like giving to everyone all the time, really demanding career. And I think, you know, you work a lot with women. And I think as a woman, that's often, you know, there's often an expectations of giving all the time. What are your thoughts about that? And, you know, what do you, what have you found in your work about, you know, unique issues for women? related to burnout. Yeah, I think that's the one common universal struggle of women today, regardless of our our career, our industry, or whether we're we're at home or working from home or caring for the family or working in a high-powered job or or, or any any number of, of industries, right? It's because we were we were as I think I think you mentioned before, we're we're raised and socialized to be givers and helpers and nurturers. And that's what's socially acceptable for us honestly, across many different cultures, not just the Western world. In fact, it's even more severe in other parts of the world. So we have that. I mean, that's how, and I'm so curious to know your experience and your perspective as a psychologist, just we're, we've got like decades of conditioning, right, in our, in our lives. And so then we're now at a point in our 30s, 40s, and 50s when we're trying to, to at least observe or be aware of it and then try to change that and how hard that can be right at the stage in our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so insidious. Sometimes we don't even realize that's the pressure, but we've, it's just becomes internalized a little bit that we, we do give and give and give and often feel like that's just normal. And that's how it has to be. And then eventually it sort of catches up to us. And it's like, I can't do it anymore. I'm tired. Right. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure with the people you work with, too, it, you may probably hear similar stories. And for women, it's like the plate just gets more and more full. It's not like we ever take we rarely take things off or we feel it's so hard for us to take things off or to even decline nicely or politely or say no. Right. Because we're worried that will make us less likable. Yeah, right. We'll get some pushback or people will be we, upset we'll with us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you also write in your book that you felt additional 
expectations as a first-generation, first-born Asian woman. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, first of all, culture-based expectations and how that might play a role for some. And then also, you know, the additional chronic stressors of people who are in marginalized or oppressed groups and how that takes a toll as well. Oh, yeah. Without question, I think, well, I, I can speak from my personal experience and then just what I've observed others and what they have to go through. I think it's, I think I'm still quite lucky compared to even more marginalized groups, right? And so certainly in the Eastern Asian culture, and I think in many Asian cultures, and honestly, a lot of cultures around the world, I think I actually have called this the triple whammy of even greater desire to please, <laughs> the disease to please. And that's, because that's what a good girl is. It's, and you don't talk back in Asian cultures, you're very obedient you don't make a fuss. It's always about not making a fuss. Don't make a fuss. <laughs> Just work hard. <laughs> and and so, and that's honestly out of love. I mean, that's, that's how women have survived for centuries and, and they're still, uh, I think it's better now, clearly, but it's not, the, the equality and the equity is not there, even for so many cultures. And so being a firstborn um, daughter of immigrants, I think maybe a lot of immigrant children can relate where our parents Uh, or even our grandparents have really sacrificed so much to get to where we are. And so the last thing they want to do is mess that up right there. At least as immigrants, they don't complain. Don't say a thing. Just put your head down and keep working harder because we don't want to be even further marginalized. And then when I look at others who are in more marginalized groups or, or very minority underrepresented groups, it's even that much harder to say no, right? Because the expectations are potentially even higher, or the judgments are even higher on those groups. We're, we're judged more critically, um, evaluated more critically. And so to say no can result in even more difficulty sometimes. So I do see that. That's a great question. Yeah, it makes me think of some of the episodes we've had in the past with racial trauma and just the emotional impact of racial trauma. We've had a few guests, and we can link to some of those episodes on our show notes for today who have talked about the stress of that or the minority stress model, whether it's a gender and sexual minority or someone with a disability or something like that, but just having to manage all that on top of just day-to-day life stress, how that can also take a toll and contribute to stress and burnout. Oh, without question, because then none of these, no one's able to be their authentic self, right? And it's, it's like you're under a cloud all the time having to, to fit into expectations. Right. Yeah. Well, we've alluded to this already um, that, you know, healthcare is certainly an area where stress is high. And I think that was true pre-COVID and your your experience that you talk about all happened pre-COVID when you kind of hit a burnout patch. Um, and certainly COVID has absolutely, you know, skyrocketed things. What can you just talk a little bit about what you've seen in your work as a director of wellness for physicians? What are you seeing right now in terms of stress and burnout at this moment in time? Oh, it's the highest we've ever seen in healthcare. And and I, of course, I, I keep very uh, on the pulse of what's going on nationally and the, the data and the headlines, of course, too. And, and we know that uh, one in three physicians is considering either downshifting their job or quitting completely within two years right now. So that shows the level of burnout we're seeing. It's uh, it's really, I think over 75% of physicians at least are cons- are experiencing moderate to severe burnout. And that's much higher than 40 to 50% pre-COVID. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's so, that, that really impacts everyone. I mean, I think that's so sad to see just for those individuals themselves, but also for how it trickles down to the healthcare system. Yeah, it's not only physicians too. I think nursing burnout is at an all high. I, it's all different fields and and roles across across healthcare. It's it's really. I think this has just been a. I think skyrocketed is a great term, but it's really pushed it to the forefront. So when you think about some of the the really big cultural and systemic issues here. And I know this is a huge question actually to have a full conversation about this. We'd have to have a second episode, but are there particular issues that you've noticed in your work that are, you think might play a role here? If we were going to look at the big picture of what needs to change. And of course, this is my bias, right? My personal opinion, just as an observer and then a participant within it in the system too. 
but it's, we have a culture in medicine of self-sacrifice and overgiving. And that's why I think this topic of boundaries is so pertinent, not just for physicians, not just for women, but really for everyone there, because we have to protect our, we've, we've essentially been trained and raised to give, 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 right. And not to always do things for the patient, but then we're getting, we have, we have among the highest rates of suicide and mental health crisis in healthcare now that we've ever had people are quitting and burning out. Right. And uh, that is definitely a factor. So if I had to put my finger on one thing, um, one of many things. So a cultural change just in terms of the culture of medicine and some of those narratives about self-sacrificing and giving. And I actually think a lot of times there's almost this expectation that you're going to be superhuman, right? Like you can take it all on and then some, and it's not going to bother you at all. Do you think, I mean, I feel like people are talking about this more. Do you see any change afoot here? Is there hope for this? Do you think, Tammy? I think there is because people are actually talking about it now, right? I mean, we know that, and I can talk to the data for physicians. I don't know the data about nursing or other roles as much as well. But for physicians, one in five physicians is considered suicide. And yet the cultural, that cultural narrative around physicians and how physicians are trained, at least in this country, is you suppress your feelings. You don't show it to others. People are coming to you for advice. You need to be the strong one. And yet clearly... (laughs) not okay. <laughs> so I feel like that's it that has to change and I know that might take generations, but it's still and so great. I think that's one of the silver linings of the last two years is that it's forced these these really difficult issues to the forefront so that we have to address them now as a systemic whole, not just as within organizations but you know, nationally. So there's really great things happening on a big scale right now, moving us toward that direction. You know, I'm seeing that. I, I was telling you before we started recording, I work with a lot of physicians in my practice, and that's partly because I spent years working in a medical center. And so I, you know, I had firsthand experience with some of this as a psychologist on a medical team. And now I work a lot with burnout and a lot of physicians, nurses, other people in the healthcare field. And I find a lot of times that people are afraid to speak up about it because there's almost this impression that, that Oh, nobody else seems to struggle in this way. You know, it seems like everybody else is, is okay. And I think more and more I'm seeing people are recognizing that they're not alone. And this narrative has partly, I think, progressed because of the pandemic. People are finally able to acknowledge it more openly. Yeah, it's a culture of silence, right? That's been handed down for a couple centuries now. And it's fine. There's so much stigma around healthcare workers and, and, and physicians also struggling. But the reality is we're all human beings first before any of us are a physician or a psychologist or a nurse, right? We're all human beings and we have to take care of ourselves as human beings first. And, and that's actually that's actually really the summary of why I do all this work is because and why I'm so open about my own struggles, because I, I so much want to model that vulnerability for others and that courage, because then it helps them others recognize that they're not alone. Absolutely. Yeah. The voices like yours and others who are speaking out about this, I think it just normalizes it and makes people realize you can't just be there seeing patient day in, day out in this huge stress load without it impacting you. And that's just how we are, you know? And it's not just us, it's the others in our lives, right? Our family members, our loved ones, it impacts their lives when we're not okay too. Yeah. So there's some of these big picture things that are maybe a little bit harder for individuals themselves to control or change. But then there's also, there are things that individuals can do and that they can change in their own, you know, little microcosm of their own world. What are some of your thoughts about that in terms of what needs to be accepted here and what and, and actually, I think this speaks beyond medicine as well. When you think about people working in various kinds of high stress jobs or roles, um, what are your thoughts about what we can and can't change? Well, I, I want to ask you the same question, too, because I love this question. And I want to, I'm so want, curious about your perspective and uh, too, as a psychologist, because I think it comes down to that internal locus of control, right? We have... We can't control anybody else. I mean, we could try, but reality is we really can't control any, really can't control other people around us. 
But what we can control is ourselves and our own internal monologue and dialogue and how we process things, right? And then how we choose to respond rather than react to what's around us. And that's where that's where the freedom lies. And that's what really what I want for others. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. I think that there are things that we can do in our own lives. And and even if we do care about some of the bigger systemic and cultural factors, we can still think about whether we want to do something in that direction. Um, and we can also make changes in our own lives. And, and there are things that are a bit of a lost cause to, <laughs> to try to control or change as well. And I think actually, you know, that old saying, they use it in AA, the serenity prayer about the wisdom to know the difference between the things you have to accept and the things you can change. I think sometimes the wisdom to know the difference part yeah. is absolutely the challenge because I think sometimes it contributes a little bit to chronic stress and burnout when people are just spending all of their time fixating on the things that are outside of their control. And that definitely happens sometimes. Oh, without question. And another way to think, another um, perspective that I found really helpful too, it's one that Louisa and I really carry through all, all of our pink coat work because we completely know that we're not going to change healthcare. I mean, our dream and our mission and our vision is to be part of the cultural change of medicine but we may not be around in our lifetime to see the fruits of our labor. But however, we feel we're okay with that because we're part of this a phrase called the transition team. Have you ever heard of this phrase before? By Tar- Tara Moore, who's a wonderful writer and a coach. She's she- been on the podcast. Oh, yes. This is her yes. phrase. Oh, okay. I love her. She's why I became yeah. a coach. Um, anyhow, it's this concept of we're all part of that transition team. We're making things better for the future and for the, set, the generations to come. And we're, we're, we, can, we can't control a whole lot out there, but we can, be, we can still try. Like we can still nudge, right? Like in the ways that we have control over and be part of that change over time. And it might take a couple hundred years, but that's okay. We can, we're doing we can, what we can. We're doing what we can during our lifetime. And we, as women, we couldn't vote 100 years, 102 years ago, right? And we have come a long ways. It doesn't feel like it sometimes that we really have. And so I have so much tremendous hope for the future because of that. Can we take a little segue into tell to telling listeners a little bit more about the kinds of things that you do for your pink coat MD project? Because I think that that's a great examples of values in action that you're trying to do something that in community that I think is really aligned with this mission that you have. So what are some of the things that you offer on Pink Code MD? Oh, yeah, I could talk about that all day. So make sure to cut me off. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, please do. No, the no I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, how long is your podcast? Yeah. The, um, <laughs> the, I mean, the summary is, I think the most important part is that sense of community and the safe space. Like, it's the whole idea that no one is alone. None of us are alone. We're not struggling alone because we really are. Our, our struggles are almost, almost always universal. And so that very first piece is that peer support and community. And then we also offer, we are very intentional about how we structured and built out the programs and the experts we brought in. We're from the physician community and we're serving women physicians, you know, created by women physicians for women physicians. We have an audience that's very data-driven and evidence-based. And so... We, of course, are very data-driven and evidence-based, too. And so everything we've pulled in there are actually the pillars of what we know works to help physicians thrive today from, from an evidence standpoint, too, as well. So we have professional and leadership coaching. We have mindful self-compassion work. We have uh, instructors who come and do that. And we offer weekly sessions and everything. We also have positive parenting we're actually starting a, a charting, conquering your charting session every month now as well, because that's a, one of the biggest pain points for physicians today. Probably not just physicians, like everyone in healthcare, maybe. <laughs> uh, and then the connection hour that we do every month. So those are those are things we do weekly on a weekly basis for Pink Coat. And we do a whole bunch of other things. But it's really the whole purpose was to bring everything to women physicians that they need to thrive. Because our goal and our dream is to help women continue to work in their careers as physicians and to thrive and to help be part of ultimately changing that culture and narrative of medicine. Well, and it speaks to the the importance of connection and community and that common humanity. You know, you mentioned compassion and just knowing you're not alone. And I'm part of some psychologist groups that are just groups of 
colleagues that care about each other and we can talk to each other about some of the nuts and bolts, like the latest, you know, paperwork laws we need to try to figure out to consulting on a clinical issue, but more importantly, just to know that we're not alone and that there's other people out there doing this kind of hard work. And so almost Mm -hmm. you're specifically working with physicians, but I think almost any, any field that you're in, you can find a way to build some community and it's incredible what can happen. They're human beings. We need connection, right? Look what happens when we don't have it. I think the pandemic really highlighted that for us, how, how much, how much we struggle. Yeah. Or can struggle. Well, I think that one of the most crucial parts of your work and what I was really honed in on when I was reading your work is around boundary settings. I mean, your your book that's out that's specifically on boundaries, I think I will be really borrowing from that in my work with my clients because I think boundaries are super important when it comes to managing chronic stress and burnout. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, let's start high level here and then we'll dive into some of the details, but why are boundaries important when it comes to well-being and, you know, preventing burnout? Yeah, it's that invisible line between what is ours and what's not, right? And so much of what drives our stress and burnout, no matter what our field is or what our background is, our gender is, what do I take on and what do I not take on, right? It's what's and it's usually involving another person. And the reality is most of us don't live in a, well, some people do live on an island, but <laughs> most of us in the metaphorical sense of an island, there's usually other people in our lives that we interact with and have to work with and get along with on this world of the planet. So it's it's all those things, and whether in a work, we're in a workplace or not. When you think about why boundary setting isn't always easy for people, what comes to mind in terms of, you know, especially for women, but maybe not just for women in general, what is it? What is, why is it hard to set boundaries? I think it's sometimes is harder than it, than it seems like it should be. Yeah. Well, I'm curious your perspective too, from the psychology background perspective, because I, I know this concept didn't really, really exist until not that long ago, 1980s. As a, as a real bonafide concept. And then it became quite popular with the Townsend and Cloud books, Boundaries in the 90s. And that's the first I ever heard of it. I didn't hear about that till like 23 years later. But my therapist gave that to me. She's like, you need to read this book. And I was like, oh, I've never heard of this word boundaries. What are you talking about? I was like in my 30s by then, right? So I wonder if it's something, we didn't grow up with it. Certainly if we're talking about Western world or we're just talking about, I don't know how where, where all of your listeners are in the world. So it might vary culturally, but uh, we didn't grow up with it. It wasn't modeled for us. Our parents definitely weren't brought up with that expectation or even that concept. And so I wonder if it'll be easier someday for our future generations if we begin to model it, or at least are aware of it and talking about it from an early age. Then it becomes ingrained and integrated, right? I'm curious yeah. what you think. Well, I hope so. I mean, yeah, I agree. I think that a lot of it is that we have to learn how to set boundaries, because I think sometimes we get really reinforced for not saying, setting boundaries, for saying yes to everything and everyone all the time. And so sometimes setting boundaries, it's difficult. You know, people might not, especially if we haven't been doing it, it can feel like an act of courage. It can be scary. It can be uncomfortable. People might have a reaction to it. So it can be hard. And I think that if we can start doing it and role modeling it, For instance, I have two daughters, they're Mm -hmm. in elementary school. And I like to think that if I can show them some what it's like to set some boundaries, that they'll be able to observe that and maybe learn how to do it, I hope. Oh, I mean, I think that's the key, because kids are and this is why I love working with kids so much as a pediatric oncologist, because there's such inherent wisdom in children, there's so much they pick up on things, right? And you don't have to say anything out loud. And they still remember things. <laughs> right. So I think there's tremendous power in us as adults and parents and teachers and mentors and physicians. Like they're looking up to us. And so I not that I want to put any pressure on anyone, but I, I view it as sometimes it's easier, especially as women, it's easier to do something for someone else than it is to do something for ourselves. And so I've reframed this for other women physicians in particular who struggle. And, and I, me too. It's not like I, I struggle too. I, it's easier for me to do it when I, I think it's going to help someone else. And so when I help to reframe it that way, it seems to click. You're like, oh, 
I, I, I can't say no for me, but if I'm doing it for my daughter, then I'll do it for my daughter. Right. And somehow yeah. it just, or my best friend or my good friend or my niece, right. Or my granddaughter. Or a colleague. I can think of some colleagues that I've worked with over the years who were pretty good at setting certain boundaries and how I learned from that. I, I was able yeah. to say, Hey, you know, this person oh, has said no to this great thing. Idea. I could do that too. Imagine that. Right. Yeah. Yes. Gives you permission when we say, oh, someone else we respect or admire or we like a lot is doing something and doing it in a way that's quite respectful and is honoring their boundaries and their core values. Yes. I think for me, it um, boundaries came to a bit of a head during the pandemic, actually, because I mean, it's not like I had no boundaries before. I definitely said no to things and I had some boundaries, but I think things just got so stressful for me. During that period of time, you know, my kids were home a lot and I was working super hard as a mental health professional during a pandemic that I had to kind of put that people pleasing part of myself to the side and just say, I can't do that. I cannot do that anymore. And so, you know, it kind of became forced a little bit. And I hope that for a lot of people, it doesn't quite get to that point. Or that they get to that point and at least recognize that they need to do that. I think yeah. you, you definitely have the awareness, self-awareness to know that I just can't do that right now, right? But others may not. Like, I certainly didn't not that long ago. So it's... Or you become yeah. resentful, incredibly resentful, right? And who wants to live that way either? Right. Resentful. Absolutely. That's not really... Yeah, most of us would not choose that. <laughs> um. Well, in your work, you write about several different types of boundaries and domains where boundaries are important and necessary. And I think one thing that was really interesting to me is that you start actually with a section on internal boundaries. And that was a little bit of an aha moment for me because I think of, I naturally think about things like saying no to people and turning down Um, extra work or something like that. But the internal boundaries are actually quite important. And it wasn't really something I had thought of in that particular way. So I was wondering if you could just tell our listeners, what do you mean by those internal boundaries, and maybe give a couple of examples of how we could work toward that? Oh, for sure. I I mean, this is all pretty much everything I've done and write and work on is all everything I wish I had right five years ago not even that long ago. So when I was first starting out this job, so I hope that some of these concepts resonate for someone listening, but it's really just self-awareness of our internal lives and experience. And so some boundaries that I, for example, in the book share, uh, one of them is just being aware of when we're really critical of ourselves, when we're being especially perfectionistic and judgmental of ourselves, because the reality is whatever's going on on the inside, it's going to come out on the outside, whether we are aware of it or not, other people can sense it. And so we've got to start from the inside. And it's so hard to set. And I start with that mainly because if we're not aware of what's going on the inside, it's so hard to set boundaries with others externally to us, if we don't have a clear, strong sense of that core. So it's like that self-awareness, when are we tough on ourselves? What are, what are our non-negotiables? That's why I always bring the values in, even though I have a lot of people say, why did you put like leadership development into a self-help book? And I'm like, because it's part of self-help. <laughs> we all need mm-hmm. it. <laughs> it's that internal compass. It just, it has not to be complicated. It's very simple. But like, what are our non-negotiables? What are the core of who we are when they're not being honored? Do we just feel like something is not right? Like we're just angry, right? And we don't know how to explain it. We feel like something's not being honored about the core of who we are. Because that ultimately is the underpinning behind setting boundaries externally to ourselves. So knowing those core values, awareness of how we speak to ourselves, are we kind or are we mean to ourselves? And then also another one, which I think is not one that we think of with boundaries is what, what are we, what are we scared of on the inside that we actually really want to say yes to, but we're holding ourselves back. And so that's another sort of the opposite of a, what we think of as boundaries, really. But it's just that awareness of what are we saying no to that we actually want to say yes to? You know, as you say that I'm having the thought that they're actually linked, right? They Mm -hmm. seem like they're opposites, but part of being able to say yes to something is that you have to say some, you have to say no to something else. So what are you saying no to so that you can say yes? Hmm, I love that. Oh, interesting. Oh, I've been thinking about this for a while. Well, because I'm all about 
when we say yes to something, we're saying no to something else. Like when we commit to something, we are saying no. So the flip side is so true. When we say no to something, what are we making room for so that we can say yes? And I think that I I just want to highlight something you said there a minute ago around just being aware of your own needs and preferences in that way is a big first step toward being able to set the boundaries that are going to be the best for you and contacting where to say no, maybe where to expend your energy. It's like, it's hard to do that if you don't even know what you want, if you're not aware of your needs. And I see a lot of people, I would say, over the years in my practice who have difficulty with that because, again, that cycle of giving or of always engaging in demands, like the pressures of all the stressors of the world, we can get very disconnected from our own needs. Like, what's good for me? What do I want? What do I need? Like, sometimes we might just totally lose that. Or not even know from the beginning. Yeah. Right. And that's it. So there's so much more energy and angst involved when we have to be thinking through all these things. Whereas when we have a nice, like, it's like an internal, it's a North star, right? It's like a little internal GPS system or a little map. <laughs> and and if we have that little internal GPS and we know where we're trying to go, then it's a lot less stressful than just driving on some random roads all over the place and not knowing where we're going. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like having a map. Oh, I love that. That's a great metaphor for it. Because it, sometimes it feels like that it's haphazard, right? We're just kind of going wherever going the next crisis is happening. And it's reacting. like, we're just reacting to what's around us rather than intentionally choosing because we can choose. We yeah. actually can choose. Well, let's talk a little bit about work boundaries. I think that, you know, whether you're maybe some of our listeners are in medicine, some are in mental health or some other field of work or life, you know, Um, but you have a chapter in your boundaries book on setting boundaries with patients specifically, but I can actually translate that. For instance, if you're in a law firm clients, if you're in mental health, you know, it's like your, your therapy clients maybe, or something like that. Often I think we've, we've learned that we have to bend over backwards, trying to respond immediately and keep up with everything. What are some pieces of advice you might offer to people like myself and others who are listening who struggle with keeping their work life contained? You know, I I just had this one thought, which is actually not even directly in the book, but I'm a huge fan of Judith Orloff's work. Are you familiar with her work? No, I'm not. I wonder wonder if this might resonate for your listeners because you have many psychologists and non-physicians in your listeners. She's a, she actually has a psychiatrist. She's an MD at UCLA. She's famous for her work with empaths and helping empaths. So people who are highly, oh, highly okay. sensitive. Yeah, I think I have heard. Many yeah. She's several New York Times bestselling author. She's like really famous in the like mindful self-compassion empath world. And I didn't know about her until recently either. She's like become a hero of mine. Uh, but she has this one phrase, which I, it's a, it's a really beautiful phrase and it helps reframe everything that, we must give others the dignity of their own path, which often means that we're actually giving others the dignity and the grace of choosing or being resilient in their own way without us having to do everything for them. And another core tenet of the coaching school I, I got one of my certifications from is that all human beings are naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. And so we don't have to fix others. It's not our, in fact, they're often more resilient than they realize, or even maybe we realize. And we don't have to bend over backwards to do it for them because honestly, they, they can themselves. And it's even much more, that's the epitome of empowerment is when you step back to allow someone else to grow in an area. And so I know these are kind of big concepts, but I just want to share them because it's another way of approaching all of our work life. Uh, that has been incredibly freeing for me. Okay. So I think that's really profound and wise. And I want to like hone it in to bring it to some real life examples, maybe, because I think, so what you're saying is maybe even a shift in terms of our roles, right? So I'm just going to use a therapist example because I myself am a therapist and I know many, many therapists sometimes Sometimes I think actually that therapists feel overworked and burned out when they feel like they have to be available for everything, no matter what. And they 
almost feel, it almost starts to feel like the client relies on them so much. And the therapist might have a really hard time shifting that point of view. There's something about it that feels it's this responsibility on the therapist, but there's also the flip side of that is that it starts to feel like maybe the client is really dependent on you or something like that. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Is that kind of how you're thinking of it? Well, that's, that's how it is for us as physicians. And is that ultimately in the greatest service of our patients or clients? Like, is that going to help them live the best, the best possible lives? Maybe, maybe not. In fact, I started to shift that perspective a little bit and realize that actually patients are still just as happy with the care they're getting. And I'm not mothering them anymore as much. And I actually think they appreciate it. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's changed the relationship in any way that is less meaningful. And I've certainly gotten feedback from patients and families that they still love me as their physician, right? But I'm not going to kill myself over taking care of them because I know that's not ultimately in the greatest service of my patients because I'm not going to be around for that long. I'm going to burn out if um, I do that. And also sometimes we do need to give them the grace of figuring it out for themselves. Right. Yeah. Well, knowing that there's a backup, I'm always here as a backup, right? Like I'm always here to support. Like it's like, it's like the, the epitome to me of leadership, which is why my other passion, which is in the way, and you, we can define leadership in many different, there's like a hundred different definitions of leadership, but the one that resonates most for me is essentially a leader is someone who develops others. And you, you can't do that by hovering. Like they're never going to develop if we hover. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just having a whole bunch of thoughts right now. It's for know, sure. You're in pediatric, <laughs> right? Oh, I love this. Um, but you're in pediatric oncology and you're able to do that. I think as a therapist, therapists can do that a little bit, right? Empower their clients and, and help clients feel like, okay, you got this. I trust you've got this. You don't need me. Um, First of all, I was thinking we had an episode years ago with Dr. William Sticksred, who's a parenting expert, who, who he co-authored the book, The Self-Driven Child, about how parents can almost be more like a coach to their kids when it comes to, to things like homework, like a consultant. I'm here if you want me to help you with something, but you're kind of, you got this on your own. And Julie Lithcott Haynes talked about the same thing on the podcast, like sort of mm, empowering yeah. kids. Um, empowering other adults and empowering, you know, maybe a client or something like that. Like, you don't need me to respond immediately to everything. Like, you can, you know, you can wait, you can do this on your own. It's, it really is a perspective shift. Yeah. And and then I honestly, maybe I can blame my coaching, all my coaching training, because this is, I'm essentially much more coach-like in how I approach everything now. But I, it's, it's been really cool to see how that's impacted even my relationships with my families and patients because I, I, they do seem way more less reliant on me and much more able to handle it themselves. They're totally capable. They're okay. And they know that I'm here as backup. Like I'll always help them if they need anything, but they're not out there on their own in any way. Like I'm absolutely there as their guide to walk alongside them through this journey in, in, in any yeah. way possible, but they are, they, they're finding they're more resilient than they realize. Yeah. 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 That's an interesting perspective shift now. And now what about, um, what do you do in your own personal life, Tammy, to make, to keep work from just taking up every hour of the day? You know what I mean? Like you have multiple roles here. You have a big job and I've started following you on social media. You seem to have a life. (laughs) <laughs> How do you do it? What about what what advice do you have for boundaries in terms of like balancing work and life? Yeah, I think it's the the for me it's been the reframe of trying not to balance it because that implies competition between one or the other. It's like if you're doing one thing, you're missing out on the other, and if you're doing one thing, you're missing out on the other one. I, I love using integration instead of I'm trying to integrate my life, I guess. But I do have really hard boundaries. For instance, patient care the electronic medical record, which is, I think, the bane of a lot of healthcare, healthcare workers' existence in modern healthcare today, is just the reality. I'm nodding my head because like, therapists uh, also <laughs> struggle to keep up. This is why I mention it, because I think yes. it's like a common struggle. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's not just in healthcare. 
care. Like people are working 24 seven from home, right? All this time. So I just, it doesn't go on. I don't turn it on at all. I don't log on. It's like when I'm at, am I, cause I now have very, I have a very different schedule where I'm in clinic Tuesday, Fridays and I work some weekends. So Tuesday, Friday, that stuff goes on and I'm very efficient when I'm there at work. And then I leave, I have hard limits. Like I come in at eight and I leave at five and I have to get it done in that time. And if I don't get it done, then it can't have been all that important because I would have cranked it up by then. <laughs> and then I don't touch it again, right? Unless there's something urgent, people can always message me and I can take care of it in the interim. But it's uh, I, I set very hard boundaries around that. What I do struggle with, and I'm very honest about it, is that I struggle to turn off all my wellness work, which like is like every other part of my life also mixed in with my family and my like love of the outdoors and my, my fur babies and my husband and all the things, you know, I love play piano and all these other things. So I, it's all mixed in there. Cause to me, um, for better or, or worse, honestly, the wellness work doesn't feel like work. It's just fun. Oh, I can relate to that with, I, you know, I, for instance, I don't see therapy clients on weekends. Never. I just don't, that's not a thing I do, but then I'll be working on the podcast, working on a writing project, all these other things. And I love them. Really. It's like my passion. And so sometimes it's, you know, I know I need to take that break, but I also, it's like, oh, I could just work on this for an hour or two. It's, it is hard, I think, to set those boundaries around the, it's seeping in, right? Right. But they're also bringing you joy and energy. So it's like, Uh, being aware of that too, it, that it's okay, that we're in flow and it's okay to have fun making the podcast or writing. Or, That's or right. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. As long as I also, you know, have a life outside of Absolutely. And your family and your kids and right. You know, so, so personal health, health and all those things. Yes. <laughs> but all right. this I think also helps the health. Like I, I, uh, people ask me this all the time and I'm very honest that it just, it doesn't feel like work. It's, it brings me, it gives me energy and it's fun. And if it's not okay. fun, I'm not That's the greatest segue to something I loved in your book, it, which is about how we use energy. And you had this idea that I thought was, I've, I've just been thinking about it a lot because I'm, a, I'm becoming more and more aware that we have to really tune in to pacing ourselves in terms of, you know, not overextending energy to the point where we're so depleted. You have this idea of energy zappers energy givers and energy mess, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those things kind of met in the middle. So could you kind of walk us through that? And how do you look at the the kind of the managing energy piece of all this? Oh, you bet. I, I think it all starts with self-awareness again, right? And it's like, how much energy do we have in our energy bank? It's like, you could think of it as a bank or a battery and things either give it to us, give us energy. So like, it's like you were and I were talking, it's fun. It gives us energy. We're passionate about it. Time flies. That's a giver, right? Clearly. Those are the things we wish we could be doing all the time, right? Mm-hmm. The zappers are the ones we, you don't have to think about it. Our gut, our gut reaction is, <laughs> it's like there's dread, dislike, distaste. I mean, this is honestly how I feel about, at least like used to feel this way about charting. But now it's no longer. It's kind of a man now. It's like, I just get it done. But it used to be a big drag, right? So stuff like that. Things that really drain our energy or honestly, um, being on call, not getting sleep at night for me really, really, really affects me. So I'm very aware of it, right? So that's a definite zapper. So stuff that zaps our energy, we dread. We, we procrastinate, put it off because it's just we don't want to deal with it, right? But it's still there. Uh, and then the mess are just the stuff in between. So most things fall into most of those categories, or at least some gray areas between those categories. And I bring that up in the book because it's really about building awareness of our own energy banks and fully recognizing that that's individual to every single person. So I can't tell you what brings you energy or drags you down or vice versa, right? Like we can't really, honestly, only you know, or only I know about me and only you know about you. So it's about helping others to build that self-awareness. Yeah, I think when we are more aware of it, we can pace ourselves more and we can have, we can almost plan for it. So instead of feeling like we have to power through, we can say, okay, you know, there's a few energy drainers on my schedule today. So I'm going to, you know, just make sure I don't schedule anything later or something like that. Or say, well, I might choose to say no to that because I know if I go do this social event or if I see this extra patient or something like that, I'm going to be really drained. And so it can give us some information about where to set boundaries. Oh, this particular person, I know that if we, 
you know, if I end up having a phone call with them, it's going to, you know, be a hard day. So I'm going to, I'm going to wait until next week or something like that. Um, so I love that. It's kind of a, a little bit of self-awareness and it can help us make some so good choices. Yeah, totally. And, and I, of course, am working on this every single day. I'm trying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Packing my schedule is, is something that totally drains me. And yet, of course, I struggle to not do that. Right. So yeah, I'm working yeah. on it. I'm working on it every day. I, my, my, one of my coaches and mentors, she said, well, we can be two different types of things. We can either be the, the, um, it's like the leader from the stage or the guide from the side. And I'm like, oh, I'm totally a guide from the side. I'm learning right along yeah, wrong side. I mean, we're, we, we teach what we're most, we most need, most need to learn. Yes, okay. that's right. Often that's what we're drawn to, right? <laughs> I'm like, I need help too. This is why I'm doing all this <laughs> too. That's why I'm drawn to it. Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I just have a couple more questions I want to ask you. The first is, could you just give me like an example or two of how to say no? Like what would be maybe an example of a time that you had to say no to something? What are the actual words you can use to say no to someone so that you know, they won't be mad at you or anything like that. Or maybe they will a little, but you're not going to like go around making everyone think you're mean. Like, how might you say no to a project that comes your way that you don't want to do? Oh, yeah. Well, I have one example because I, my first initial reaction recently was to say yes. And then I realized, oh, I don't need to say yes right now. And it's a tiny example. So I'll give this example because it just happened in my life. But and I don't know Perfect. if this will resonate for others. But it's essentially like a task came my way that didn't need to be my task is the summary. But what we I was the doc of the day, which is I was covering for other docs when they're not in clinic. Right. And I helped out get an emergency ophthalmology appointment for a patient because I'm good friends with the opt- ophthalmologist. So I have a connection. I'm able to do it. They said yes. Happened. Long story short, that that appointment had to be rescheduled. And so then we really need to reschedule an emergency ophthalmology appointment. And then so staff members came and asked me, will you please reach out to that person again? Because it was so effective when you did it last time. And my initial reaction was, oh, oh yeah, of course I can totally do that. I mean, it's no big deal. But then I realized my colleague, who's, this is her patient, was just sitting down the hallway. And I said, you know, you know, so, you know I could do it. But honestly, I think Becky can totally handle this. She's just down the hall. And if she has any trouble, she could totally come and find me. So I kind of said, I didn't even use the word no, <laughs> mm-hmm. because, uh, but I said, essentially, actually, I think this, this task is, is most appropriate for Becky to do because she has, she's here today. She has the most information about the patient. And if there really is a problem getting an appointment with my buddy, who's the ophthalmologist, they can always still, I'm like, I'm still willing to help if it doesn't work out, but I didn't like offer that right up front and it ended up working out fine. I didn't hear anything else about it ever again. Okay. That's a great example. A tiny example, but three years ago, I would have totally just done it and said yes, but not even thought about it. <laughs> so it's a tiny I example. I love it. Yeah. And I like what you're saying about how sometimes it's not like a hard no, like never, ever, ever. It's more like, well, this might make more sense. Why don't you do that? I'm still here. I, I've heard of that kind of like a sandwich no a little bit. It's like followed up with a positive or something like that can work sometimes. Well, no, but definitely don't offer something if you're not actually willing to give it later. I was yeah. actually willing to help later if there was a problem, but it could be, it could have been a situation where I always say, if you want to say no, but you really aren't willing to do it later, just, you have to say no. You just have to stick with your <laughs> guns, right? right? Yeah. And, yeah. and you don't have to say no, you could say, I'm just not able to do that right now. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not um, able to do that. I'm just not able to do that right now. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's good. And what would you say if you got a little bit of pushback, right? If it was like, well, come on, come on, come on. But it was a hard no. How would you handle that? Well, then you kind of have to feel out what the other person's energy is. And and, and just explain, I'm, I'm really not able to right now. Yeah. Just and honest. Honest. And you don't have to give a whole lot of explanation unless it's yeah. relevant. That's going to help the other person understand. Yeah. And yeah. and the reality, I also think of it too, is when people are giving us a hard time about saying no, it helps you. It's a, it's a, another perspective and another thing that might be going on is that person probably struggles to set boundaries too. So I view it as an opportunity to help them to model healthy boundaries too. And so sometimes I'll even explain it out loud to people who I think might be struggling themselves. I'm like, well, I'm not able to right now. And the reason why is because I have X, Y, and Z on my plate. 
And I, I just, if I do that one more thing, I'm, I'm really trying to do X, Y, and Z. And I want to model that for others. I want to model that for you. And I've actually I love had, it. had people really thank me for that, actually. Yeah, it's just honest and direct. And I think that's great. Simple, you know, you don't not need to harsh. be over it. I'm not harsh. I'm not pushy about it. I'm just like, this is where we're at right now. I wish I could do that, but I can't. Yeah. Well, Tammy, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and your wisdom on our podcast. I'm so grateful to have met you. I, I would love to stay in touch with you. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more, we'll absolutely link to your books and other resources on our show notes. Where can people find you online, on social media, and find out more? Oh, sure. Thank you so much. It's been just, uh, thank you. It, I've loved talking with you. So it's my, my website is www.tammychangmd.com and it's Tammy, T-A-M-M-I-E, Chang, C-H-A-N-G-M-D.com. And I'm the same, Tammy Chang MD on uh, all the social media handles. So Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. Okay, great. Well, we will, like I said, we will link to you and all these resources on the show notes for today's episode. And thank you again for the work that you're doing and for coming on to talk to us today. Oh, thank you for what you're doing. I've loved this. I've learned so much today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.